Book Four, Part One of the Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Broadrib. Book Four, January to November, A.D. seventy. Part one. When Vitellius was dead, the war had indeed come to an end, but peace had not yet to begin. Sword in hand, throughout the capital, the conquerors hunted down the conquered with merciless hatred. The streets were choked with carnage, the squares and temples reeked with blood, for men were massacred everywhere as chance threw them in the way. Soon, as their license increased, they began to search for and drag forth hidden foes. Whenever they saw a man, tall and young, they cut him down, making no distinction between soldiers and civilians. But the ferocity, in which the first impulse of hatred can be gratified only by blood, soon passed into the greed of gain. They let nothing be kept secret, nothing be closed. Vitellianists, they pretended, might be thus concealed. Here was the first step to breaking open private houses. Here, if resistance were made, a pretext for slaughter. The most needy of the populace and the most worthless of the slaves could not fail to come forward and betray their wealthy masters. Others were denounced by friends. Everywhere were lamentations and wailings, and all the miseries of a captured city, till the license of the Vitellianists and Othianist soldiery, once so odious, was remembered with regret. The leaders of the party, so energetic in kindling civil strife, were incapable of checking the abuse of victory. In stirring up tumult and strife, the worst man can do the most. But peace and quiet cannot be established without virtue. Domitian had entered into possession of the title and residence of Caesar, but not yet applying himself to business, was playing the part of a son of the throne with debauchery and intrigue. The office of prefect of the Praetorian Guards was held by Arius Varus, but the supreme power was in the hands of Primus Antonius, who carried off money and slaves from the establishment of the emperor, as if they were the spoils of Cremona. The other generals, whose moderation or insignificance had shut them out from the distinction in the war, had accordingly no share in its prizes. The country, terror-stricken and ready to acquiesce in servitude, urgently demanded that Lucius Vitellius, with his cohorts, should be intercepted on his way from Tarakina, and that the last sparks of the war should be trodden out. The cavalry was sent out to Aricia. The main body of the legions halted on this side of Bouvali. Without hesitation, Vitellius surrendered himself and his cohorts to the discretion of the conqueror, and the soldiers threw down their ill-starred arms in rage quite as much as in alarm. The long train of prisoners, closely guarded by armed men, passed through the capital. Not one of them wore the look of a suppliant, sullen and savage. They were unmoved by the shouts and jests of the insulting rabble. A few, who ventured to break away, were overpowered by the force that hemmed them in. The rest were thrown into prison. Not one of them uttered an unworthy word. Even in disaster, the honor of the soldier was preserved. After this, Lucius Vitellius was executed. Equally vicious with his brother, he had yet shown greater vigilance during that brother's reign, and, may be said, not so much to have shared his elevation 
as to have been dragged down by his fall. About the same time, Lucilius Bassus was sent with some light cavalry to establish order in Campania, where the towns were still disturbed, but by mutual animosities, rather than by any spirit of opposition to the new emperor. The sight of the soldiery restored quiet, and the smaller colonies escaped unpunished. At Capua, however, the third legion was stationed to pass the winter, and the noble families suffered severely. Terracina, on the other hand, received no relief. So much more inclined are we to requite an injury than an obligation. Gratitude is a burden, while there seems to be a profit in revenge. They were consoled by seeing the slave of Virginius Capito, whom I have mentioned as the betrayer of Terracina, gibbeted in the very rings of knighthood, the gift of Vitellius, which they had seen him wear. At Rome, the Senate, delighted and full of confident hope, decreed to Vespasian all the honors customarily bestowed on the emperors, and indeed the civil war, which, beginning in Gaul and Spain, and afterwards drawing into the struggle first Germany and then Illyricum, had traversed Egypt, Judea, and Syria, every province and every army. This war, now that the whole earth was, as it were, purged from guilt, seemed to have reached its close. Their alacrity was increased by a letter from Vespasian, written during the continuance of the war. Such indeed was its character at first sight. The writer, however, expressed himself as an emperor, speaking modestly about himself in admirable language about the state. There was no want of deference on the part of the Senate. On the emperor and his son Titus the consulship was bestowed by decree, on Domitian the office of praetor with consular authority. Mucianus had also forwarded to the Senate certain letters which furnished matter for talk. It was said, Why, if he is a private citizen, does he speak like a public man? In a few days' time he might have said the very same words in his place as a senator. And even the invective against Vitellius comes too late, and is ungenerous, while certainly it is arrogance to the state and an insult to the emperor to boast that he had the imperial power in his hands, and had made a present of it to Vespasian. Their dislike, however, was concealed. Their adulation was open enough. In most flattering language they voted a triumph to Mucianus, a triumph for a civil war, though the expedition through the Samartai was the pretext. On Antonius Primus were bestowed the insignia of consular rank, on Arius Varus and Cornelius Fuscus praetorian honors. Then they remembered the gods, it was determined that the capital should be restored. All these motions Valerius Asiaticus, consul-elect, proposed. Most of the senators signified their assent by their looks, or by raising the hand. But a few, who either held a distinguished rank, or had a practiced talent for flattery, declared their acquiescence in studied speeches. When it came to the turn of Helvidius Priscus, praetor-elect, to vote, he delivered an opinion full of respect indeed to a worthy emperor, yet wholly free from insincerity, and he was strongly supported by the sympathies of the Senate. To Priscus, indeed, this day was, in an especial manner, the beginning of a great quarrel and great renown. As I have again happened to mention a man of whom I shall often have to speak, the subject seems to demand that I should give a brief account of his life and pursuits and of his fortunes. Helvidius Priscus was a native of the town of Caracina, 
in Italy, and was the son of one Cluvius, who had been a centurion of the first rank. In early youth he devoted his distinguished talents to the loftiest pursuits, not wishing, as do many, to cloak under an imposing name a life of indolence, but to be able to enter upon public life with a spirit fortified against the chances of fortune. He followed those teachers of philosophy who hold nothing to be good but what is honorable, nothing evil but what is base, and who refuse to count either among things good or evil, power, rank, or indeed anything not belonging to the mind. While still holding the quaestorship, he was selected by Pytius Thrysa to be his son-in-law, and, from the example of his father-in-law, imbibed with peculiar eagerness a love of liberty. As a citizen, and as a senator, as a husband, as a son-in-law, as a friend, and in all the relations of life, he was ever the same, despising wealth, steadily tenacious of right, undaunted by danger. There were some who thought him too eager for fame, and indeed the desire of glory is the last infirmity cast off even by the wise. The fall of his father-in-law drove him into exile, but he returned when Galba mounted the throne, and proceeded to impeach Marcellus Epirus, who had been the informer against Thracia. This retribution, as great as it was just, had divided the Senate into two parties, for if Marcellus fell, a whole army of fellow culprits was struck down. At first there was a fierce struggle, as is proved by the great speeches delivered by both men. But afterwards, as the feelings of Galba were doubtful, and many senators interceded, Priscus dropped the charge, amidst comments varying with the tempers of men, some praising his moderation, others deploring a lack of courage. On the day, however, that the Senate was voting about the imperial dignities of Vespasian, it had been resolved that envoys should be sent to the new emperor, Hence arose a sharp altercation between Helvidius and Epirus. Priscus proposed that they should be chosen by name, by the magistrates on oath. Marcellus demanded the ballot, and this had been the opinion expressed by the consul-elect. It was the dread of personal humiliation that made Marcellus so earnest, for he feared that, if others were chosen, he should himself appear slighted. From an angry conversation they passed by degrees to long and bitter speeches. Helvidius asked, Why should Marcellus be so afraid of the judgment of the magistrates? He has wealth and eloquence, which might make him superior to many, were he not oppressed by the consciousness of guilt. The chances of the ballot do not discriminate men's characters. The voting and judgment of the Senate were devised to reach the lives and reputations of individuals. It concerns the interests of the commonwealth. It concerns the honor due to Vespasian that he should not be met by those whom the Senate counts to be peculiarly blameless, and who may fill the Emperor's ears with honorable counsels. Vespasian was the friend of Thracia, Soranus, and Sextius, and the accusers of these men, though it may not be expedient to punish them, ought not to be paraded before him. By this selection, on the part of the Senate, the Emperor will, so to speak, be advised whom he should mark with approval, and from whom he should shrink." there can be no more effectual instrument of good government than good friends. Let Marcellus be satisfied with having urged Nero to destroy so many innocent victims. Let him enjoy the wages of his crimes and his impunity. But let him leave Vespasian to worthier advisers. Marcellus declared, 
It is not my opinion that it is assailed. The consul-elect has made a motion in accordance with the old precedents, which directed the use of the ballot in the appointment of envoys in order that there may be no room for intrigue or private animosities. Nothing has happened why customs of long standing should fall into disuse, or why the honor due to the emperor should be turned into an insult to any man. All senators are competent to pay their homage. What we have rather to avoid is this, that a mind unsettled by the novelty of power, and which will keenly watch the very looks and language of all, should be irritated by the obstinacy of certain persons. I do not forget the times in which I have been born, or the former government which our fathers and grandfathers established. I may regard with admiration an earlier period, but I acquiesce in the present, and while I pray for good emperors, I can endure whomsoever we may have. It was not through my speech any more than it was through the judgment of the Senate that Thracia fell. The savage temper of Nero amused itself under these forms, and I found the friendship of such a prince as harassing as others found their exile. Finally, Helvidius may rival the Catos and the Bruti of old in constancy and courage. I am but one of the Senate which bows to the same yoke. Besides, I would advise Priscus not to climb higher than the throne, or to impose his counsels on Vespasian, an old man, who has won the honors of a triumph, and has two sons grown to manhood. For as the worst emperors love an unlimited despotism, so the noblest like some check on liberty. These speeches, which were delivered with much vehemence on both sides, were heard with much diversity of feeling. That party prevailed, which preferred that the envoy should be taken by lot, as even the neutral selection of the Senate exerted itself to retain the old practice, while the more conspicuous members inclined to the same view, dreading jealousy, should the choice fall on themselves. Another struggle ensued. The praetors of the treasury, the treasury was at this time managed by praetors, complained of the poverty of the state, and demanded a retrenchment of expenditure. The consul-elect, considering how great was the evil, and how difficult the remedy, was for reserving the matter for the emperor. Helvidius gave it as his opinion that measures should be taken at the discretion of the senate. When the consuls came to take the votes, Vocatius Tertullianus, praetor of the people, put his veto on any resolution being adopted in so important a manner in the absence of the emperor. Helvidius had moved that the capital should be restored at the public expense, and that Vespasian should give his aid. All the more moderate of the senators let his opinion pass in silence, and in time forgot it, but there were some who remembered it. Musonius Rufus then made a violent attack on Publius Keller, accusing him of having brought about the destruction of Barius Serranus by perjury. By this impeachment, all the hatreds of the days of the informers seemed to be revived. But the accused person was so worthless and so guilty that he could not be protected, for indeed the memory of Serranus was held in reverence. Keller had been a professor of philosophy, and had then given evidence against Berea, thus betraying and profaning the friendship of which he claimed to be a teacher. The next day was fixed for the trial, but it was not of Musonius or Publius, it was of Priscus, of Marcellus, and his brother informers that men were thinking, now that their hearts were once roused to vengeance. 
while things were in this state, while there was division in the Senate, resentment among the conquered, no real authority in the conquerors, and, in the country at large, no laws and no emperor, Mucanius entered the capital, and at once drew all power into his own hands. The influence of Primus Antonius and Varus Arius was destroyed, for the irritation of Mucanius against them, though not revealed in his looks, was but ill-concealed, and the country, keen to discover such dislikes, had changed its tone and transferred its homage. He alone was canvassed and courted, and he, surrounding himself with armed men, and bargaining for palaces and gardens, ceased not, what with his magnificence, his proud bearing, and his guards, to grasp at the power, while he waived the titles of empire. The murder of Calpurnius Galerianus caused the utmost consternation. He was a son of Gaius Piso, and had done nothing, but a noble name and his own youthful beauty made him the theme of common talk, and while the country was still unquiet and delighted in novel topics, there were persons who associated him with idle rumors of imperial honors. By order of Mucianus, he was surrounded with a guard of soldiers. Lest his execution in the capital should excite too much notice, they conducted him to the fortieth milestone from Rome on the Appian Road, and there put him to death by opening his veins. Julius Priscus, who had been prefect of the Praetorian Guard under Vitellius, killed himself rather out of shame than by compulsion. Alphanius Varus survived the disgrace of his cowardice. Asiaticus, who was only a freedman, expiated by the death of a slave his evil exercise of power. At this time the country was hearing, with anything but sorrow, rumors that daily gained strength of disasters in Germany. Men began to speak of slaughtered armies, of captured encampments, of Gaul in revolt, as if such things were not calamities. Beginning at an earlier period, I will discuss the causes in which this war had its origin, and the extent of the movements which it kindled among independent and allied nations. The Batavians, while they dwelt on the other side of the Rhine, formed a part of the tribe of the Chatti, Driven out by a domestic revolution, they took possession of an uninhabited country on the extremity of the coast of Gaul, and also of a neighboring island, surrounded by the ocean in front, and by the river Rhine in the rear, and on either side. Not weakened by the power of Rome, or by alliance with a people stronger than themselves, they furnished to the empire nothing but men and arms. They had had a long training in the German wars, and they had gained further renown in Britain, to which country their cohorts had been transferred, commanded, according to ancient custom, by the noblest men in the nation. They had also at home a select body of cavalry, who practiced with special devotion the art of swimming, so that they could stem the stream of the Rhine with their arms and horses, without breaking the order of their squadrons. Julius Paulus and Claudius Civilis, scions of the royal family, ranked very high above the rest of their nation. Paulus was executed by Fontius Capito on a false charge of rebellion. Civilis was put in chains and sent to Nero, and though acquitted by Galba, stood again in peril of his life in the time of Vitellius, when the army clamored for his execution. Here were the causes of deep offense. Hence arose hopes built on our disasters. Civilis, however, was naturally politic to a degree rarely found among barbarians. He was wont to represent himself as Sertorius, or Hannibal, 
on the strength of a similar disfigurement of his countenance. To avoid the opposition which he would encounter as a public enemy, were he openly to revolt from Rome, he affected a friendship for Vespasian, and a zealous attachment to his party, and indeed a letter had been dispatched to him by Primus Antonius, in which he was directed to divert the reinforcements which Vitellius had called up, and to keep the legions where they were by the feint of an outbreak in Germany. The same policy was suggested by Hordianus in person. He had a bias towards Vespasian, and feared for the empire, the utter ruin of which would be very near, were a fresh war with so many thousands of armed men to burst upon Italy. Civilis, who was resolved on rebellion, and intended, while concealing his ulterior designs, to reveal his other plans as occasion presented itself, set about the work of revolution in this way. By command of Vitellius, all the Batavian youth were then being summoned to the conscription, a thing naturally vexatious, in which the officials made yet more burdensome by their rapacity and profligacy, while they selected aged and infirmed persons, whom they might discharge for consideration, and mere striplings, but of distinguished beauty, and many obtained even in boyhood to a noble stature, whom they dragged off for infamous purposes. This caused indignation, and the ringleaders of the concerted rebellion prevailed upon the people to refuse the conscription. Civilis collected at one of the sacred groves, ostensibly for a banquet, the chiefs of the nation and the boldest spirits of the lower classes. When he saw them warmed with the festivities of the night, he began by speaking of the renown and glory of their race, and then counted the wrongs and the oppressions which they endured, and all the other evils of slavery. There is, he said, no alliance, as once there was. We are treated as slaves. When does even a legate come among us, though he come only with a burdensome retinue, and in all the haughtiness of power? We are handed over to the prefects and centurions, and when they are glutted with our spoils and our blood, then they are changed, and new receptacles for plunder, new terms for spoilation are discovered. Now the conscription is at hand, tearing, we may say, forever children from parents, and brothers from brothers. Never has the power of Rome been more depressed. In the winter quarters of the legions there was nothing but property to plunder, and a few old men. Only dare to look up, and cease to tremble, at the empty names of legions, for we have a vast force of horse and foot. We have the Germans, our kinsmen. We have Gaul, bent on the same objects. Even to the Roman people this war will not be displeasing. If defeated, we shall still reckon it a service to Vespasian, and for success no account need be rendered. Having been listened to with great approval, he bound the whole assembly with barbarous rites and the national form of oath. Envoys were sent to the Canifates to urge a common policy. This is a tribe which inhabits part of the island, and closely resembles the Batavians in their origin, their language, and their courageous character, but is inferior in numbers. After this he sent messengers to tamper with the British auxiliaries and with the Batavian cohorts, who, as I have before related, had been sent into Germany, and were then stationed at Mogotiancum. Among the Canifates there was a certain Brino, a man of a certain stolid bravery, and of distinguished birth. 
his father, after venturing on many acts of hostility, had scorned with impunity the ridiculous expedition of Caligula. His very name, the name of a family of rebels, made him popular. Raised aloft on a shield after the national fashion, and balanced on the shoulders of the bearers, he was chosen general. Immediately summoning to the arms the Frisii, a tribe of the farther bank of the Rhine, he assailed by sea the winter quarters of two cohorts, which was the nearest point to attack. The soldiers had not anticipated the assault of the enemy. Even had they done so, they had not the strength to repulse it. Thus the camp was taken and plundered. Then the enemy fell upon the settlers and Roman traders, who were wandering about in every direction, as they would in a time of peace. At the same time they were on the point of destroying the forts, but the prefects of the cohorts, seeing that they could not hold them, set them on fire. The standards, the colors, and what soldiers there were, concentrated themselves in the upper part of the island, under the command of Aquilius, a centurion of the first rank, an army in name rather than in strength. Vitellius, in fact, after withdrawing the effective troops from the cohorts, had loaded with arms a crowd of idlers from the neighboring villages of the Nervii and the Germans. Civilis, thinking that he must proceed by craft, actually blamed the prefects for having deserted the forts, saying that he would himself, with the cohort under his command, quell the disturbance among the Canafates, and that they had better return to their respective winter quarters. It was evident, however, that there was some treacherous design beneath this advice, that the cohorts would be dispersed only to be more easily crushed, and that the guiding hand in the war was not Brino, but Civilis, for indications of the truth, with the Germans, a people who delight in war, cannot long conceal, were gradually coming to light. When stratagem proved ineffectual, he resorted to force, arranging in distinct columns the Canafates, the Batavians, and the Frisii. The Roman army was drawn up to meet them not far from the river Rhine, and the ships, which, after burning the forts, they had stranded at that point, were arranged so as to front the enemy. Before the struggle had lasted long, a cohort of Tungrians carried over their standards to Civilis. The other troops, paralyzed by the unexpected desertion, were cut down alike by friends and foes. In the fleet there was the same treachery. Some of the rowers were Batavians, and they hindered the operations of the sailors and combatants by an apparent want of skill. Then they began to back water, and to run the sterns on the hostile shore. At last they killed the pilots and centurions, unless these were willing to join them. The end was that the whole fleet of four and twenty vessels was deserted or was taken. For the moment this was a brilliant success, and had its use for the future. They possessed themselves of some arms and some vessels, both of which they wanted, while they became very famous throughout Germany as the champions of liberty. The tribes of Germany immediately sent envoys with offers of troops. The cooperation of Gaul, Civilis endeavored to secure by politic liberality, sending back to their respective states the captured prefects of cohorts, and giving permission to their men to go or to stay as they preferred. He offered to those who stayed service on honorable terms, to those who departed the spoils of the Roman army. At the same time, he reminded them, in confidential conversations, of the wrongs which they had endured for so many years, 
while they falsely gave to a wretched slavery the name of peace. The Batavians, he said, though free of tribute, have yet taken up arms against our common masters. In the first conflict, the soldiers of Rome have been routed and vanquished. What will be the result if Gaul throws off the yoke? What strength is there yet left in Italy? It is by the blood of the provinces that the provinces are conquered. Think not of how it fared with the armies of Index. It was by Batavian cavalry that the Idui and the Averni were trampled down, and among the auxiliaries of Veringius they were found Belgian troops. To those who will estimate the matter aright, it is evident that Gaul fell by her own strength. But now all are on the same side, and we have whatever remnant of military vigor still flourished in the camps of Rome. With us too are the veteran cohorts to which the legions of Otho lately succumbed. Let Syria, Asia Minor, and the East, habituated as it is to despotism, submit to slavery. There are many yet alive in Gaul who were born before the days of tribute. It was only lately indeed that Quintilius Varus was slain, and slavery driven out of Germany. And the emperor who was challenged by that war was not a Vitellius, but a Caesar Augustus. Freedom is a gift bestowed by nature on even the dumb animals. Courage is the peculiar excellence of man, and the gods help the braver side. Let us then, who are free to act, and vigorous, fall on a distracted and exhausted enemy. While some are supporting Vespasian and others Vitellius, opportunities are opening up for acting against both. Kivalis, bent on winning Gaul and Germany, if his purposes should prosper, was on the point of securing supremacy over the most powerful and most wealthy of the states. His first attempts, Hordionius Flaccus had encouraged by affecting ignorance. But when messengers came, hurrying in with intelligence that a camp had been stormed, that cohorts had been cut to pieces, and that the Roman power had been expelled from the island of the Batavians, the general ordered the legate, Munius Lupercus, who was in command of the winter quarters of the two legions, to advance against the enemy. Lupercus, in great haste, threw across the Rhine such legionaries as were on the spot, some Ubian troops who were close at hand, and some cavalry of the Treveri who were stationed at no great distance. These were accomplished by some Batavian horse, who, though they had been long disaffected, yet still simulated loyalty, in order that by betraying the Romans in the moment of actual conflict, they might receive a higher price for their desertion. Kivalis, surrounding himself with the standards of the captured cohorts, to keep their recent honors before the eyes of his own men, and to terrify the enemy by the remembrance of defeat, now directed his own mother, and sisters, and the wives and children of all his men, to stand in the rear, where they might encourage to victory, or shame defeat. The war song of the men, and the shrill cries of the women, rose from the whole line, and an answering but far less vigorous cheer came from the legions and auxiliaries. The Batavians had exposed the left wing by their desertion, and they immediately turned against our men. Still the legionaries, though their position was alarming, kept their arms and their ranks. The auxiliaries of Ubii and Treveri broke at once in shameful flight and dispersed over the whole country. On that side the Germans threw the weight of their attack. Meanwhile the legions had an opportunity of retreating into what was called the old camp. Claudius Labio, 
prefect of the Batavian horse, who had been the rival of Civilis in some local contest, was sent away into the country of the Frisii. To kill him might be to give offense to his countrymen, while to keep him with the army might be to sow the seeds of discord. End of Book 4, Part 1